Well, thank you, and uh, let me add my welcome to you all, and thank you, guys, for leading us so well so far. Let's come to prayer. Let's ask God's blessing upon this part of our service where we open his word. Let's remember Peter Taylor as well in prayer, whose sister-in-law went home to be with the Lord on Friday night after suffering a brain aneurysm. And Peter's asked to pray for the two ladies that Janice, his sister-in-law, was discipling. They're getting baptised this afternoon, and they went to see her just before she went home to be with the Lord. Incredible that, uh, yeah, precious in his sight are the death of his saints. Let's uh, pray for Peter now and then for God's word. Father, we thank you for our brother, your servant Peter. Thank you that he has spent days by his sister-in-law's bedside, and it pleased you to call her home to be with you on Friday. Comfort Peter and his brother and all of the family and all of the church there where she, Janice, worshipped. We pray for those two ladies that Janice was involved in discipling, especially as they get baptised this afternoon and stand uh, with Janice in their faith in Christ. So we commend this time to you as well. Pray your blessing upon at your word that you might speak to us from it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What would you say was the greatest threat that we as Christians in the United Kingdom are facing at this time? The people who work in the security services in our nation have identified five threat levels for assessing the constant threat that we're under for, in this world in which we live, and they have identified five levels, which you'll see on the screen behind me. But as we apply that principle of what threat level are we at and what is the threat we are facing, we've been looking into 1 Timothy these Sunday mornings and the message of the letter of 1 Timothy from Paul is, we can see on the footnote of the slide behind me is, man of God, guard God's church with God's gospel for God's glory. That's the message of 1 Timothy in a nutshell. So therefore, in the light of that, what would you say is the primary threat that the man of God is to guard God's church from? If he is to guard God's church from something, what's he to guard them from? So I come back to my question. What would you say was the greatest threat that we as Christians in the United Kingdom are facing at this time? Let me give you some options and you can vote uh, accordingly. Would you say that the greatest threat threat, that we're facing as Christians in the United Kingdom at this time is persecution and suffering or pleasure and plenty? Which Which would you say was the biggest threat? Hands up if you think persecution and suffering. Hands up if you think pleasure and plenty. You're right. That is exactly the biggest threat. And we saw last week that Christian leaders, men of the word, who have fallen prey to the love of money trap, they have become men of the world and they take other people down with them. That is the clear and present danger that the Apostle Paul warns Timothy about here in this letter. And it's the same danger that we face today. And it's not at threat level five, critical, It's actually happening right now. It's worse than threat level five. 
It is happening right now. Our culture is absolutely saturated and intoxicated with the love of pleasure and plenty. And we are in this culture. I'm reminded of a story. This is, this is not a true story. You'll, you'll see why this is not a true story from the moment I open my mouth. But it does carry a point. The story is told of two fish swimming in a river. And one fish says to the other fish, you can see it's not a real story, can't you? Water's warm today. The other fish says, what's water? We don't even know we're swimming in warm water. This is the culture we are living in. What's water? So if that's the present threat that the church in Paul's day and Timothy's day faced, and it's the same threat that we face today, so the question becomes then, how is the man of God to guard God's church against this clear and present danger called the love of money? The answer the passage gives us is by two things. One, by the man of God is to take hold of eternal life himself, verse 12. And the man of God is to commanded to command the church to take hold of eternal life too, verse 19. To take hold of life that is truly life. Here is where the threat is so very deceptive. Notice he says in verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world, this present world, that's the world we're living in, this present world. In this present world, life that is truly life, verse 19, life that is eternal life, verse 12, in this present world looks like death. It looks like death. That's why he quotes Jesus giving a good confession before Pilate. We'll come to that. It looks like death. It's the way of the cross. But it leads to eternal life. Whereas, this is how this present world views the Christian life. It looks like death. Whereas life, in in the eyes of the present world, that is truly death looks like gold-plated life, verse 10, but it leads to eternal death, verse 9, ruin and destruction. So the life that we're called to follow, the life that we're called to take hold of, looks like death. The life that leads to eternal death looks gold-plated and lovely. That's the nature of the threat. So Paul, in closing this letter, has three massive life lessons that he commands. He uses the word command a number of times in this letter, deliberately so. He commands Timothy and therefore us, by extension, to obey. They are, number one, man of God, take hold of eternal life for yourself. Verses 11 through 12. Lesson number two, man of God... Command your people to take hold of eternal life for themselves. Verses 17 through 19. And then he shows us how we can. How the man of God can take hold of eternal life. 
and how the man of God, the man of God teaches, the people the man of God teaches can take hold of life for ourselves. It is by being fully satisfied. It is being fully God-satisfied and totally Christ-centered, verses 13 through 16. That's where we're going this morning. So, if you have your Bibles, please turn back to that passage that Becca read to us. Man of God, take hold of eternal life for yourself. Look at verse 11 and 12. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The man of God, the pastor teacher, is here commanded to take hold of, to take full possession of, eternal life. He's to do so tenaciously and violently. That's the language that Paul uses. He's to flee, follow, and fight So why does Paul use the language of warfare? I think it's fairly obvious from the nature of the things we've been learning in the letter, because it is deadly serious. There are things that he must flee, there are things that he must follow, and there is a faith that is worth fighting for. His never-dying soul and, in fact, his body, his physical body, not just his soul, but his body, depends upon winning this war. That's the first reason why Paul uses the language of command, warfare language. And the second reason is because very promising Christian leaders had fallen into temptation and wandered away from the faith. Look at verses 9 through 10. Verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. When he talks about the some people in verse 10, he's not just talking about Christians, he's talking about specifically Christian leaders. Christian leaders, pastor teachers who've been gripped by and fallen prey to the love of money, have wandered away from the faith. He's already mentioned two of them by name in chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. People of Christian leaders, recognized, publicly known, popular Bible teachers who've become men of the word, have wandered away from the faith. It is that serious. So how is he to take hold, how is the man of God, the pastor teacher, to take hold of eternal life? Fleeing, following, or pursuing, and fighting. Look at verse, uh, where does it say that? Verse, uh, flee, verse 12, verse 11. Flee from all this. Flee from all what? Flee from all he's been saying about the dangers of, the seductive power of, the love of money. It's interesting, I did a little Bible search on this. There are some things that we are called by God to resist, namely our struggle against sin, Hebrews 12, 4. We are called to resist the devil, James 4, 7, 1 Peter 5, 9. But there are some things God commands us to flee from. A number of things that we as Christians are to flee from. Sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Idolatry, 1 Corinthians 10, 14 the evil desires of youth, 2 Timothy 2.22, and here, 
We are to flee from the love of money. Paul recognizes that these temptations, particularly the temptation for pleasure and plenty, that's wrapped up with the love of money, are so powerful and so toxic, the Apostle Paul, as the commander-in-chief on the ground at this time, through the Lord Jesus Christ's advice, command is, not advice, flee, flee, run. Now, Christian leaders who recognize the temptation of the love of money and the pull of money and don't flee from it will fall prey to it and will be destroyed by it and will destroy others in the process too. No wonder the Apostle Paul says, flee from all this. You have not got the capacity or the strength to resist yourself. You think you can, you're playing with fire. You will destroy yourself and others. Follow and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Here's where the fork in the road is. This is the road the Christian leader must personally choose to walk on. It is a matter of choice. It is being Christ-like in all of your relationships. I haven't got time to go through all of the words that are mentioned there, the pursuing of righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Let me just pick out two. He cites two characteristics that must mark the man of God in this battle, endurance and gentleness. This is a long game. Endurance is essential, and gentleness with other folk, as we shall see, is also essential. What Paul is saying here is that the man of God will be swimming against the tide of the culture in which the church is at any given moment in human history. The man man of God, the Christian leader of a congregation, the Christian leaders of a congregation, will be different to the culture in which we are called to love and serve. We will be therefore swimming against the tide of the culture. But it's more serious than that, because Paul says, sometimes the man of God, the leaders of the church, will be swimming against the tide of the church as well. Flee, pursue or follow, fight the good fight of faith. Notice he says, fight the good fight of the faith. When Paul uses the phrase, the faith, it is shorthand for the gospel of God. It isn't how he feels about Jesus. It isn't his personal stuff. This is objective, God-revealed reality called the gospel. And he uses that phrase, the faith, a number of times. 1 Timothy 1.2, 1 Timothy 1.14, 1 Timothy 1.19, 1 Timothy 3.9. And he always, always consistently means by that phrase, the faith, It is the revelation of God in Christ through the Bible. And it is always to be fought for by the man of God. Why? Because it is always under satanic attack. The first question Satan asked Adam and Eve in the garden 
was concerning the integrity of the revelation of God. Has God really said? The faith is always under attack by Satan. God cannot be trusted is Satan's lie. And the faith is something that the man of God must fight for. And some of the Christian leaders in the church where Paul was called to serve had abandoned the faith. Chapter 4, verse 1. Some of the Christian leaders in the church where Paul was called to serve had denied the faith. Chapter 5, verse 8. And some, as we've already seen in chapter 6, verse 10, have wandered from the faith. You see, Timothy and therefore all true pastor teachers are to fight for the faith because it is a faith worth fighting for. And in some cases, it is a faith worth dying for. And after all, is it not a blood-bought faith that saves sinners for time and for eternity? This is what Paul calls all the elders of the church to take hold of eternal life. By fleeing, following, and fighting. You must, as a church, you must demand this of your, teach, of your elders. You must demand us, this of us. And you must hold us to account for this. And you must also pray for us in this. Your, the elders of this church must be men of God who are fleeing from all this, following righteousness, etc., and fighting the good fight of the faith. That's what God calls us to be for your good and for his glory. That's what you are to hold us to account for. That's what the man of God is commanded to do, but he's also commanded to command those people, command your people to take hold of eternal life for themselves. Look at verses 17 through 19. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. In these verses, the man of God, who is himself taking hold of eternal life, is commanded to command his people, a.k.a. those who are rich in this present world. Let me just say, I was ever so grateful for what the Lord put in the mouth of Joan Adams last week, to reminding us that we are amongst the 5% of the richest people on the face of the earth. Roof over your head, running water, on tap electricity. 95% of the world's population do not have those things. And we do. And it was very interesting to hear what Abby said. Well, the things, one of the things that the biggest impression that she got from one of the, one of the biggest impressions that was the Lord made upon her when she went to visit the homes of the kids in Serbia that she's serving and went, wow. Wow. Because if we're living in this culture all the time, we get used to it. The water's warm today, isn't it? 
What's water? So in these verses, the man of God is commanded to command his people to do something about, to, to lay hold, to take hold of eternal life, to take hold of the life that is truly life. Notice he says in verse 17, in this present world, the gospel will shape to the, to the degree that you have embraced the gospel to that degree, it will shape how you live and function in this present world. If you are laying hold of and taking hold of eternal life, that will shape how you live in this present world. The coming age, which we'll come on to in a moment, will have an influence on how you live in this present world. That's what the gospel does, by the way. The, present, the, the, the coming age has an influence for you in this present world. And the acid test that Paul identifies is how we invest our... Notice what he says about our money. Uh, which, our wealth, is, which is so uncertain. Our wealth... Our property, our possessions, our bank balances, our pension pots, etc. He is, Paul says, it's un so uncertain. It is so uncertain. How many people have lost everything when the stock market crashes? <laughs> All the things they've invested in. I've lost Everything. Paul says how we handle our uncertain wealth is the acid test of how passionately and deeply we believe the gospel and where our future hope is truly located. Let me read verse 17 to you again. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so un uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Strange, isn't it? We were thinking about this in our home group on Wednesday, and uh, one of the group reminded or mentioned to me, it was news news to me, that someone in the church was very offended when someone from the front of the church started talking about money. Strange. We don't like talking about money, do we? We're British. <laughs> we, 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 we have a, there are a number of taboo subjects in our culture, aren't there? There are things that we don't talk about, they're taboo. And apparently money in our culture, is a taboo subject. But it's, it's taboo in what I would call a perverse way. What do I mean? We don't like talking about money, per se, in that cold, clinical way. But we do like to Facebook our possessions and our pleasures that we invest a fortune in, don't we? We have all the little, pick, the little pickies of the exotic places we've been, and 
and all the smiley faces. And, and the, we do, don't we? We absolutely do love to talk about our possessions and our pleasures. We absolutely do. But we don't like talking about money. We don't like talking about money and how we relate to it spiritually as a general rule. So one of the things that we need to ask whoever's going to be the next pastor of this church is his relationship with money. How does he handle it? How does he view it? How does he, does he, how does he manage it? It's a hugely important spiritual reality. And I think we're generally embarrassed as a church about celebrating the joy of giving to the Lord's work. We pass the bag around, praise God for that, but we do so in a quite a discreet way, don't we? Some cultures actually make it a huge part of the celebration and praise and adoration of God. It's a massive thing in some cultures where the love of money hasn't got such a deep root and grip upon our souls. And why do you think that is? And when we set our church budgets for our financial year coming up, which givers should we look to to set the budget? Should we look to the members of the church who give, or should we look to the God who provides us with everything we need to, to provide for everything doing his will? Which is the primary giver we as the church leader should look to when setting the budget? I leave that for you to think about. Paul talks about the problem of our wealth, doesn't he? Look again at verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. The problem of our wealth, it can lead to arrogance. There's the parable that Jesus told of the man, the rich man, who built bigger barns. The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plenty. What did the rich man do in Jesus' parable in Luke 12, 16 through 21? Built bigger barns. And then he said, I've got plenty. Look at the pension fund I've got. I'm going to take life easy. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. What did God say? You fool! Tonight, your soul will be required of you. You see, our arrogance, in when at the, the possession of wealth, can seduce us into becoming arrogant and self-sufficient. We can guarantee our future in this present world. We believe somehow that what we've accumulated will keep us secure. And Paul says, you are leaning on a broken stick. It is an uncertain hope. Even though it is laced with Christian ease, it is false and fragile and will fail you. But then he talks about the purpose of our God-given wealth. It is, after all, not, is it not God who has given it to us? What caused the ground of the rich man to bring forth plenty? God did. He didn't. It wasn't his farming skills. God did. He has richly provided us with everything for our enjoyment. Verse 17. He's richly provided us with everything for our enjoyment. 
You see, therefore, that's why Paul says what he says in verse 18 and 19. Putting our hope in our richly generous God will shape how we invest our time and our talents and our treasures. Verse 18, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up a treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I met a chap from South Africa recently. His name is John Temple. He's an incredibly wealthy man. He worships at a church in Bournemouth, and he's written a number of books. I've got some free copies. He gave them away, (laughs) and I'm going to put them on the bookshelf at the back. John Temple wanted to go into full-time pastoral ministry. That was his passion. And he was an elder in a church plant in Pretoria in South Africa. And he, he said, I, I, remember, I well remember one day, I, I was preaching in the morning service, and he said, I preached my heart out. I literally preached my heart out on that Sunday morning service. And there was a converted Jew who was a very successful businessman in the congregation, member of the congregation. And he said to me afterwards, John, thank you for your message this morning. Let me ask you something, John. He said, "Um, you're a businessman, aren't you? He said, yes, I am. He said, you're very good at making money, aren't you? He said, yes, I am. He said, well, go and do that so you can pay someone who can preach. South African for you. But he took that as from the Lord. He didn't have a meltdown. He thanked God for that. He tells the the story of uh, this, this fragile church plant in Pretoria, which started with a few members. And there was a retired Anglican minister's wife. She was a widow. She'd been a widow for some time. And she drove around a shabby little car and she lived in a tiny run-down house. And they thought, well, she certainly needs the help and support of the church. John was the uh, church treasurer at the time. That is a good choice to make him the church treasurer. And um, she said, "I'd I'd like to make a donation to the work of the gospel. Can you please help me how to do that? Can you please show me how to do that? Of course. And he thought it's going to be a small, proportionally massive sum from her tiny, tiny wealth that he thought she had. Turned out she was a multimillionaires. And she basically bankrolled the church plant. She was so captured by the gospel that the money that God had given her was to be used for his glory for the coming age. You see, so how do you... how? How you relate to your God-given wealth, where does it reflect? It will reflect the fact that you are taking hold of life that is truly life, verse 19. Or it will reflect the fact that you are investing in this present world that is truly death. So the man of God is called, commanded to take hold of eternal life for himself. And the man of God is commanded to command his people to take hold of life. That is truly life. 
and make it safe home. So how, are, how is he and we to do that? Look at verses 13 through 16. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. Here is another infinitely serious charge from the Apostle Paul. In the sight of God and of Christ Jesus, I charge you. We've seen that the stakes could not be higher. The eternal destiny of people rests literally on this command being kept. The eternal everlasting honor of God rests on this command being kept. So how is Timothy to keep on keeping on in this warfare? And how are the church leaders in our generation to keep on, and how are we to follow this command? How are we as God's family to keep this command? The verses tell us that we are to do two things. Number one, we are to be fully God-satisfied. Fully God-satisfied, in the sight of God. Notice what he says. Who gives life to everything? Why are you alive here this morning? Answer, God gave you life. Why do you have everything you have? Clothes to wear, food to eat, a place to go, a job. Why do you have everything you have? Answer, God gave you everything. God gave you everything. Are you satisfied? Are you God satisfied with everything he's given you? There's liberty here, there's freedom here, there's joy here to be fully satisfied in God. He gave you life. How did God give you everything for life? How did he give you life? He gave you life through the, ultimately, he gave you life through the death of his son. So the second thing that we, can, we must take hold of, and this is how we take hold of eternal life, by being fully God-satisfied, and secondly, by being totally Christ-centered. Verse 13, and of, in the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made, notice what he says, the good confession. What's the good confession that Jesus made before Pilate? What is the good confession that Paul wants Timothy to remember? Because Timothy made a good confession, didn't he, in verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I take the, the, the good confession in verse 12 to be what Paul said at his baptismal service when he gave his testimony, how he became a Christian. 
the good confession he made. But he reminds him that Christ Jesus made the good confession in verse 13. What was the good confession that Jesus made that Paul reminds Timothy to not forget? The most extensive treatment of Jesus before Pilate in the four Gospels is in John's account. All the others are just a very brief summary. In John's account, we read these words. In John chapter 18, and I think there are two things, well, one thing that Jesus says in the good confession. And here's the excerpt from the interview. Pilate then went back into the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Here it is. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. That's the good confession. My kingdom is not of this world. And so Paul is reminding Timothy and reminding us of the good confession that Jesus made before he went to the cross, before Pilate. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is from another place. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. And he paid in blood on the cross to bring all of his people home to his kingdom. We're to be totally Christ-centered by focusing on his good confession that he made before Pontius Pilate. And we'll be totally Christ-centered by focusing on his appearance again. Verse 14, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the cross and the crown. And those are the things that we are to be totally Christ-centered on. His crucifixion and his return as the king. Because his kingdom is not of this world. Paul opened this letter by telling us this glorious truth, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he closes the letter by reminding us that this Christ Jesus who came into the world to save sinners by going to the cross will come back again as reigning, ruling king. Is that where your deepest longing is? How do we know that we are a church that is truly God-satisfied and totally Christ-centered and have therefore, with confidence, can say we've taken hold of eternal life. How can we know? We will know by how we relate to the money that God has blessed us with. And we will know because our love for him will overflow in ecstatic, joyful, God-satisfied, Christ-centered praise. God, the blessed, the only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, 
To him be honor and might forever. Amen. The love of money is the greatest threat to our leaders and to ourselves. The antidote is by taking hold of eternal life. Let us pray. Father, we thank and praise you for warning us of the present danger that we're in and giving us the way out. We praise and bless you for giving us the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for giving us everything that we have to richly enjoy for your glory and our good. Make us a church, Father, that is regularly, daily, taking hold of eternal life that is in Christ Jesus. And help us to use all that you've given us well for your honour and glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's conclude our time by standing and singing, O Church, Arise.